Welcome to the Glasgow Girls Club podcast, where we chat to inspirational folks throughout the city about living their best lives and encourage our listeners to grow and glow. Hello and welcome to Keeping Up With Cosmedicare episode two. Tonight we are talking about boobs, glorious boobs, or I think it was tip for chat, tip for chat tonight. So very excited about that. So a warm welcome to anyone watching live and also anyone watching the playback on the GGC podcast or on YouTube, because this has been recorded as well. So before we get started and we, uh, I welcome our amazing inspirational guest, one of whom you will already know, and another which is a GGC first, I have to say, in the community. I just want to get through. I know I'm that. We are. <laughs> An absolute first. I just want to get through a couple of points. So keeping up with Cosmedicare like the Glow Live has been brought to you lovely lot to bring you information on a variety of different topics. So we want to leave no stone unturned for knowledge is power. That's become a bit of a mantra in the GGC and we want to bring you as much information as is possible. So if the topic is of interest to you, you're going to get a really unique opportunity to speak direct to experts in their field and ask them anything and based on the questions that we've had coming in for this live this is going to be a really really exciting chat so as with everything you see in the ggc always make sure you do your own research it's really important and we're going to get onto that in a wee bit as well um but you know let's go for it and let's chat so if you haven't already watched episode one of cosmedicare keeping up with cosmedicare you need to because it's a no holes barred chat with this brilliant woman jill baird who was the first female in Scotland to found and operate and manage a cosmetic surgery brand, which is pretty well. And in that chat, Jill took us from school, and obviously you won't mind me saying Jill because we had a really lengthy <laughs> chat about it, from being expelled at school, to then going on to creating an amazing brand and soon to launch your own fully funded private healthcare facility, which is multi-million pound and state of the art as well. So a real wow woman. So we're going to be chatting more to Jill. And also a first, as I mentioned, we have Dan the Man. <laughs> There's live a song. <laughs> in the DGC community. We love it. So Dan is, I like, I mean, Dan, Jill MBA. Dan has got multiple multiple letters after his name. And actually, I'm going to take a wee bit of time just to give you an overview of Dan because we will be chatting about, you know, if you get any kind of aesthetic, uh, you know, or any kind of medical thing going on with your face, your body, you really want to do research on the person that's doing it. So I'm going to give you a wee bit of an overview because Dan might actually not give it to us himself. So Dan is a medical... Dan's very modest. Dan's very <laughs> modest. I'm getting that vibe from Dan. So I just want to give the girls an overview of him. So Dan is a medical director at Cosmedicare and one of the leading plastic and reconstructive surgeons in the NHS and private sector specialising in general plastic surgery as well as complex breast recon reconstruction, augmentation, laser surgery, hand surgery, scar revision, skin tumour excision and bar burns scar reconstruction, gender reassignment surgery, fat transfer procedures and body contouring. I mean, and I'm not even done yet. I'm not even yeah, done yet. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not even done yet. So Dan is a member of the British Medical Association and MDU. Within his NHS role, he is the co-lead for burns surgery in the east of Scotland and heavily involved in the NHS gender reassignment surgical pathway nationwide. He's one of the 
the leading specialist in plastic and reconstructive surgery in the UK and is trained in multiple locations. So Dan, welcome. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I now know why you call him Dan the Manjil. Oh, he's fantastic. Honestly, Dan has been with me right from the very, very start of Medicare, along with Will Anderson, and both of them have been pillars of building this business, um, along with Ian Lang, who's our lead anaesthetist. The quality of the guys are, is just outstanding. I know, and, you, and you talk to me about that all the time, and, and something that we often talk about, Jill, is how important it is to, to do your research and know, you know who your medical practitioner, who your surgeon is, and you know, so what what type of questions should people be asking? Because obviously we're saying, you know, do your research, see what else is out there. But you know, if you're if you're going to get something done, and obviously tonight we're talking about breast surgery, what type of questions should you be act, asking to a potential surgeon? So we decided to flip this on its head. Like a lot of people ask this question, and we say the same things about checking the surgeon's credentials, making yep. sure they're GMC registered, which is a general medical council, they should be registered as a specialist on there. But Dan and uh, Will actually helped me recruit surgeons. Um, they, they choose the surgeons that are coming into Cosmedicare um, to operate on our patients. So yeah. I thought it would be nice that Dan explains how we choose who's going to be in our team because yeah. we wouldn't bring anyone into our team that we wouldn't be happy having operations with ourselves. Yeah. And the, the types of surgery each person offers is very different. Yeah. So we select people for particular procedures as well as overall surgeries as well. So, yeah, uh, I mean, it's a good point. It, it's a very difficult question, even for someone for me to explain the answer to in the medical profession. Mm -hmm. you know, why should you choose surgeon A or surgeon B? I think the point you said about being registered on the GMC is okay, but actually, you need to be on the specialist register for plastic surgery on the GMC. Okay. So, it's there in the public domain. Anyone can look it up, and you know, my name's there. If you're a plastic surgeon, your name will be there. There are lots of doctors who practice and do procedures that aren't maybe registered as plastic surgeons it might just be a gp or something like that and they're doing something that you know perhaps they don't have uh the professional qualifications that we would demand uh here to to operate but uh, it, it's a very difficult thing to select a surgeon from a patient's point of view but also from our point of view as well yeah. um, i think one of the aspects for for me is having a surgeon that is local uh someone with a proven track record you know everyone has a footprint and you know, all of our surgeons have had good experiences and bad experiences, but uh, word of mouth is one thing. Uh, but for me, you know, knowing that surgeon and knowing knowing the team and knowing what they're like, both in the independent sector and the NHS as well. Um, most of us, if not all of us, have uh, jobs in the NHS and we, we, we sort of do everything we do here in the NHS as well. And, and that really is just the track record that you're looking for when choosing your surgeon, I think. Mm -hmm. It gives, it gives an element of reassurance, not just to me bringing those surgeons in that work for the NHS and their consultants within the NHS, because they're not going to do anything that's going to jeopardise their job or their reputation amongst their fellow medical professionals. Um, and also, they're not going to do anything to jeopardise <clears throat> their pensions and their access to training and things. One of the things that I like about a surgeon having an NHS consultancy post means that they are staying up to date on the latest training. They know the best safety records. They know the best techniques because the NHS invest heavily in making sure that their teams are at the forefront. And, and that's one of the things, the things that I like as well. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So tonight, guys, we're talking about breast surgery. You know, obviously, breast surgery, there's lots of different elements to it. So I think the first thing that you think about is obviously enlargement, like you, like augmentation implants but actually there's reconstruction there's reduction there's uplift and there's there's nipple 
surgery as well. So we are going to cover each element of it, which I think is going to be really, really interesting for people because very much so the content that we do in these live is governed by questions that get asked in the community. And this is a question that comes up quite regularly. You know, it's a post-approval group. I get to see the questions that come up. So, and we've actually had some really, really brilliant questions come in from the community. This is all stuff that I wish that I'd seen alive on breast surgery before my own experience with it as well. So, well, we just get right to these questions. Yep. Let's okay. do it. So I thought what would be good before like talking about each of the elements of breast surgery, it might be good to even give us an overview of like a standard procedure. Now, we all know that, you know, different bodies, there'll be different things that go on, different things that happen, but like a standard like protocol in terms of, you know, consultation through to, you know, surgery, through to downtime, potential scarring, if that would be okay. So by far the most questions we got coming in was like, breast enlargements and implants that was by far the most questions that we got so could you give us just a, a like a kind of overview of like a what a standard procedure for um, getting a, a breast enlargement surgery would be okay so most of them start off the same you make your inquiry whether you get in contact via phone email internet and um, somebody's recommended you to us a lot of people find themselves on our private online group where they can see before and afters and speak to our previous patients and they come to us that way so you make an inquiry, it asks your height, your weight, what procedure you're looking for, when you're looking to have surgery, any medical conditions. So we gather quite a bit of information for you before we call you. And the first stage is having a telephone consultation with one of our surgeons. Um, to do that, you submit images, doesn't have to have your face in it. And those are stored securely and sent to the surgeon um, on the day of your telephone consult. The surgeon then phones you that night. Um, and the telephone consults are usually about 15 to 20 minutes long. The surgeon speaks to you based on the images that are there and the questions that you've got um, and then one of our team phones you the next day. By that time we've got feedback from the surgeon as to initial indications of what's required um, and we can give you initial costings based on that. If you then want to come for a face-to-face -face, we arrange that and that's when you come and meet the surgeons and meet our patient care coordinator teams. All of our consultations are free of charge and um, they take place in our Edinburgh Park Surgical Centre but when we move to Livingston they will be there as well. Um, and when you come along, you see the surgeon, you get to find out more about him because um, it's, it's all male surgeons that we have. Um, and they take you through the whole pathway. So that's probably when I'm best handing over to you because. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the initial discussion, um, you know, is to get the medical history to find out more importantly what the patient wants, because they, one person might want something completely different to another person. Um, and it's a very visual thing. So actually, for me, looking at pictures or seeing someone in person is very important. And, you know, it, it, it's almost impossible by saying something to describe what you actually like and what your one person's cleavage might be different to another person's cleavage. So um, the, what the patient expected outcome for me is the most important thing. The medical history and everything, that's all standard. But knowing, knowing what a patient wants is, is the real difficulty. And that's you know, that's a recipe for success. If you, if, if I can determine what you want, uh, then you know you're onto a winner. If you can't, then that, that that's a bit of an issue. So, I think for all the procedures, but probably quite importantly, breast augmentation, that's uh, the most important thing. Um, in terms of helping to predict the outcome, that's a very difficult thing as well. We use sizing kits. We have a 3D camera that I think we're going to speak about later on. Um, but it's really getting you, the patient's mindset in my mindset to know what, what we're aiming for. Um, the surgery itself is actually pretty straightforward. And, you know, 
I'm, I keep telling everyone I'm just the technician, but getting to that point where you know what they want and how to get there, that's the hard bit. So actually the surgery is dead easy uh, and pretty straightforward. It usually is something for a straightforward breast augmentation takes less than an hour. Um, recovery okay. is pretty, pretty rapid. Usually they're in and out of the facility within three and a half hours, something like that. Um, it's nothing, is it? Yeah, I mean, it, it's almost almost belittles it really, but we, we're so efficient at it that it, you know you don't need to spend two nights in hospital. Um, and then the recovery is kind of up to the patient. So that everyone wakes up in a sports bra. Um, you know, everyone's pain is relatively well controlled when they leave the they leave the, the facility, and then it's kind of up to up to them to do not much and take and it rest. easy and recover and rest. Uh, and that recovery is you know fairly standard um but uh, yeah that's that's kind of it in a nutshell so it's, it's a pretty straightforward procedure but the planning is the key and the planning starts by talking to the patient yeah. this is one of the things that, that i think makes a good surgeon as well being able to communicate effectively with their yeah. patient and build uh, a rapport based on trust a lot of the ladies that are coming to see us they're quite self-conscious about their, their bodies so the thought of coming into a facility and meeting with a surgeon who it can be very intimidating for a lot of people. They haven't taken their clothes off. They don't want to show their partners, never mind a complete stranger. Um, all, all consultations are chaperones, so either myself or one of the patient care coordinators is in. We make it quite lighthearted and try and make it as little as intimidating as possible and just to relax the patient as well. Um, the surgeon takes measurements and then explains why they're taking those measurements and how that impacts on what can be achieved with implants, what sizing they can go to, Implants are looked at in terms of CCs as opposed to cup size, so we explain what that is, we explain the difference between teardrop and round implants, whether it's behind the muscle or in front of the muscle, and I know there's questions in relation to that as well, so we'll touch on that later. Probably one of the most common questions we get asked is about getting put to sleep. Some people have got a lot of concerns about that. Um, so we do, <clears throat> when we go to Livingston, um, it'll be general anaesthetic, but here um, we offer a, a technique called TIVA. It's total intravenous anaesthetic. So you are asleep, but you're maintaining your own airway. So you don't have a tube down your throat. Okay. Um, it's recovery a lot easier, but you are asleep. You, you're not awake. You're not able to converse with us. You are asleep and completely unaware. And most people can't even remember waking up in first stage recovery. Yes. Brilliant. Okay, great. And there is, like you said, there's questions relating to some of the stuff that you said there. So we'll, we'll, I won't repeat it. I'll we'll let the, the questions come out. Okay. So that all sounds really straightforward in terms of that explanation, which was all really, really good. So let's get on to questions from the community because these were absolutely brilliant. Right. Okay. So question number one, I get called midgy bites. And as much as I laugh along, I'm so self-conscious of my chest. Everything I wear is extra padded, which is uncomfy in itself. I'm so scared of getting surgery and then looking unnatural. Can you tell me about the 3D visual scan you offer to clients and how close to the actual results, like the, the pictures are? Uh, do you want to do yeah. that? Do you want so to when, the expert with the 3D camera? When I first introduced the 3D cameras, the surgeons were not keen on it at all. They were saying, this is going to give an unrealistic expectation. We cannot guarantee that we're going to meet this result. Dan liked it. Dan did <laughs> to be quite at the forefront of things he wants to know what's happening over in america where the the capital of cosmetic surgery okay want to be that way i mean the actual technology of using it i don't know if many of them know how to use it now you're probably the best one with it um i can't tell my left from my right especially when it's mirrored and you're trying to get asymmetry right but 
what it's able to do is it can act as a fantastic communication tool between the patient and the surgeon and a really good visual. So if someone comes in and say they're completely flat chested and they say, oh, my friend's got 360 cc implants, mm -hmm. but they're saying they want a BC cup, it's really difficult and it's subjective. So what brass size you are in Marks and Spencer's is going to be completely different to what you are in Boo uh, Avenue or Ann Summers. So to have a visual to be able to see this is roughly what this is going to look like. And they are pretty accurate. They're pretty accurate. They're pretty accurate. We haven't looked at that in detail, but uh, the, the biggest problem I have with the camera is the camera is, is very good, but it's just a very static image. Mm -hmm. and what it tends to do is upsize people. And of course, you can just, you know, keep, keep going and turning the size up and everything looks great, great, great. But I spent my entire life trying to convince people to you know, dampen that down, go for as small a volume as you can for the look that you're happy with, just because yeah. of the weight of the implant. So it doesn't, it's not a it's not a dynamic thing, it's just a camera shot, a snapshot. Yeah. And you have to remember that you know it's all about the long-term outcome. Yeah. Uh, and you know, for me, that's the most important thing, trying to do the best thing for the patient long term. Yeah. And it's, it's really funny because you'll know yourself, like when you're going for a breast augmentation, you speak to the friend, your friends, they always go, go bigger, go bigger. So he speaks surgeon, I speak female, and somewhere in the middle, we try and find what the person actually wants. <laughs> I know, I remember when I went, I was like everything you said, completely terrified of the actual consultation because I didn't get my chest out to anybody apart from myself. And like, yeah, like if there had been a camera there, it would have been amazing. And I remember because I got my surgery 12 years ago, None of my, like no one had really, none of my friends were all about like, you know, why are you doing that? Why are you doing that? They didn't really know how low self-esteem I actually had. But yeah, like I think that having the camera, like they were all like, go smaller, go smaller. And I'm like that. <laughs> but actually it's really important to, to think about the long-term outcome, like you said, Dan, because, you know, you might think at the time, like, let's go for it, but then you don't want there, you don't want there to be any regrets yeah. down the line. So you guys obviously can can guide your clients, which I'm sure, like, as you say, you do, which is brilliant. I, th okay. I think breast augmentation, it's revolutionized the way that we consult for breast augmentation. And, and as you say, it's allowed patients to approach when they perhaps wouldn't have done beforehand because they can visually see it before they see it. Yeah, that, it was really interesting through COVID because obviously we were closed um, part of the way through COVID and you can upload your pictures from home and we can do this remotely. So regardless of whether it's um, you're wanting implants, you're wanting a reduction, you're wanting an uplift, or you're wanting an uplift with implants, you can go online, upload these. It comes to us. As long as you've given us an idea of what you're looking to do, I can do that and then share it back with you and you get a visualisation of what the different sizes look like. So you're getting to think about it before you even come to see us. Before you make a commitment. And also that was a question down the line. So obviously you're saying that you could do that then for... The different types of breast surgery it wouldn't just be augmentation surgery you could do it for okay that that is really revolutionary so that'll make a real difference okay amazing right so next question i've never had a cleavage even with a bra i would like to consider breast implants but my friend says that you don't always end up with a cleavage after getting implants can you tell me why this might be the case and is this something that could be confirmed if i could get it during a consultation yeah, absolutely. I, I'll, I'll talk now. The uh, you, Basically, with breast augmentation, you're enhancing what you already have. Mm -hmm. So part of the consultation for me is pointing out not necessarily flaws to patients, but exactly what they already have. Because when you put breast implants in there, everything you have is exaggerated. And they may not have been aware that one nipple is in a centimetre high and the other one or vice versa. Um, so me, for me, that's the most important thing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
One of, this is a question that we get asked quite frequently, and it's one of the reasons why the surgeons take the measurements of your breast and your base, and that then impacts on what type of profile of implant you get. A lot of people think that high profile means it sits higher up, but it's actually to do with the width and the whole distribution of volume within the implant. Um, we do have a range of samples, and probably visually that's the best way to, to be able to show someone, like, okay, this is a high profile implant, this is a medium profile implant of the same volume, but it's a different distribution and how that's going to sit and whether it's going to give you a cleavage or not. And the placement of the implant also comes into play at that point too, which again is really useful for the scanner because we can we can place things differently and you do get an idea of what your outcome is going to be like. So mm -hmm. it's almost like a try before you buy type yeah. experience. <clears throat> but as with everything else, nobody really knows how somebody's body is going to react to surgery until after they've had it. Yeah. Um, nine times out of 10, everything goes well. But your breast base, which is if you put your finger underneath there, mm -hmm. that's where mm -hmm. the envelope is, is going to fall to and that's where the implant's going to sit. So the height of the implant from there up is going to influence the, the projection and, and the cleavage aspect as yeah. well. I mean, the, the cleavage is more about the, the placement this way. You know, some people's breasts are out there, some people's breasts point inwards. And, and so going back to what you already have is enhanced. So if your breasts are very widely spaced to start off with, you're unlikely to have a cleavage unless you have a bra pushing everything together. Mm -hmm. uh, that's the okay. bottom line. So, but you can usually determine that as a surgeon before surgery and say, you know, this is going to be the limitation. Not everyone's okay. the same. Not everyone's breast base is pointing that way mm -hmm. or that way or Absolutely. It's really interesting, actually, because it's not something that I'd even thought about before. So it's good for people that are thinking about it to have these things in mind um, and know to ask as well. Yep. Um, OK, next question then. Under the muscle or above for mm -hmm. implants, why opt for one or the other? Is scarring wor worse with one or the other? Uh, OK, so scarring is exactly the same mm -hmm. on the outside. And that's usually through a four or five centimetre incision underneath the breast crease. There are other ways to do it, but I find that's the best, best access and the scar fades to you know, almost invisible. Um, in front of or behind the muscle, I would say 90% 90, 90 plus of the implants I put in are behind the muscle. Mm -hmm. uh, in most people, the muscle, I think we over-exaggerate how big the muscle is, the muscle being the petroalus major muscle. It's usually very thin. And um, it really only covers the top 50% of the implant when you're putting it in anyway. So the lower part of the implant is not covered by the muscle, whether you put it behind or in front of the muscle. There are advantages to putting it under the muscle. Um, the main one being it provides basically an extra barrier between the outside world and the inside world. Mm -hmm. And that gives in some people a more natural look, but it can also reduce the risk of things like rippling, be able to see the implant through the skin, you know, to feel the implant through the skin. Um, more importantly, there is a slightly reduced risk of capsular contracture. Mm -hmm. So this is the most common long-term problem with breast implants that might require you to have revisional surgery, where the body produces scar tissue around an implant and it can become tight and it can ride the implant up and it can become painful. And there's a lower incidence of that if you put it behind the muscle. Now, people will probably say, well, if you don't put it, if you put it behind the muscle, I don't want a natural look. You can still get an unnatural look. You can still get cleavage by putting it behind the muscle. It's then dependent on the choice of the implant as to what that look is. So most of the patients, even patients who want unnatural looking breasts, I would go behind the muscle. There are so many advantages to have that for me, it's, it's usually the way. The only thing that you do when putting it behind the muscle is you have to cut the muscle. So you have to divide the muscle at its insertion to a degree. Yeah. 
and so people you know for example uh, you know anyone who's had breast surgery would probably can agree with me if you try and do a press up straight afterwards you'll fall flat on your face because you will not just not be able to do it but you have to tell people you know that's part of the recovery and so no no for upper body work in the gym after surgery for a good six weeks uh, and it's really about that muscle reforming and um, you know your body retraining the way it, it, the shoulder works basically yeah absolutely that I, I was under the muscle and I, I did find like even like you you don't really appreciate maybe like if you're sitting up in beds like you think like when you're sitting down to the toilet you use so my friend had above and we had a wee bit of a slightly different recovery um yeah. time and I think she was she was like I was hoovering the next day I was like well, I was in my bed <laughs> <laughs> yeah so it's, it's something to consider but it's, it's interesting that there's there's two options and that you would maybe recommend more under the muscle obviously based on what somebody's after and the other thing to say is everyone's muscles are very different. So you might have really well-developed pec major muscles, whereas someone else might not have virtually any pec major muscles. So yeah. that, it, that is a factor as well. And there are one or two other downsides in terms of the dynamic nature of the implant when you're doing upper body exercises and that side of it. So okay. That tends to be a, a question that comes a lot from people that do an awful lot of exercise, whether they're personal mm -hmm. trainers mm -hmm. um, or bodybuilders and things like that. They, they worry about being under the muscles. That's something we usually discuss at length with them at consultation. Okay, brilliant. And everyone's different. And that's like what we're seeing throughout this whole thing, isn't it? Everyone's different and their desires are different. So consultation's so important. Um, okay, next question. I had breast augmentation surgery 10 years ago, which included implants and an uplift. After three kids, my, boob, my boobs need hiked back up. And I also feel like my nipples are no longer in the same place. What can be done about that? Uh, so first thing to say is pregnancy is never kind to breasts ever I don't think I think most people would agree with that um it basically what she's got is the postpartum situation where we've lost elasticity in the breast tissue um they've got an increase in size decrease in size and the skin is sort of stretched and it, it's lost that recoil and that's caused the nipple to fall down and so basically the solution to that is lifting the nipple up if she's already had implants in there then the likelihood is that over time the implant has been riding up very slightly as she's developed a degree of capsular contracture and the breast and with children has gone down. So you then got to match them up again, basically. Mm -hmm. So that's probably a combination of replacing the implants, doing a capsulotomy, so releasing that scar tissue on the inside, and then thinking about redoing that uplift, which is a lot more risky redoing it, but not impossible. Okay, so you can get another uplift after having had one then? You can, yeah. You can, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> well the, the thing is people age and gravity is never kind with the oh. aging process either so yeah. it's not just kids it's weight gain and weight yeah, loss and yeah. it's, it's just something that happens I mean everything goes south all over your body and <laughs> doesn't matter how fit and healthy you are you, you can't really control that aspect so if you've had an uplift maybe in your early 20s for different reasons by the time you're in your 30s 40s you might need a, another one and it, it can be redone they just reposition everything back up again Okay. Make it sound really simple. Just they just do that. Guys, <laughs> <laughs> like, cheers, Joe. <laughs> um, right, okay. What about then? This is just a total curveball. So, say someone gets a, an uplift like 10 years later, could they get a third? Or is that like, no, like your two is your. Yeah, the, the main issue is uh, essentially the blood supply to the nipple. There are lots of different ways you can do an uplift, but basically, all of them, you're keeping the nipple attached to you and you're lifting it up. So, you're cutting 
around it and behind it to lift it upwards. Now, the thing that keeps that nipple alive is called a pedicle. And that's this sort of tongue of tissue that arises usually from somewhere up here. And that's moved then with the nipple attached to it. But because there are so many different ways of doing it, you don't know what someone else has done already. Mm -hmm. and therefore, you sort of want to do the same again. If you do something differently, then you might be cutting straight through that. And so the risk of nipple necrosis, it's the same with repeating a breast reduction, mm -hmm. is much higher in those patients. So nipple um, necrosis is when the nipple sorry. dies. Nipple dying. I've never heard about that before. This that is period, super isn't? important. If anyone is getting an uplift or reduction or anything done with nipple work, you need to be with a surgeon that can do what's called a free nipple graft. Every single one of the surgeons in cosmetic care that does breast surgery can do free nipple grafts. It means basically if the shit hits the fan in the table and the blood supply doesn't look like it's going to that nipple, they can take it off and graft it back on again and you don't end up with a black nipple. Oh, okay. That but is important. And this is what comes back to checking your surgeon's credentials, making sure they're experienced, making sure they know what they're doing. Yes. And they need to be able to react quickly and identify things and not leave it. We've yep. never lost a nipple, touch your wood. Um, in five years with any of our surgeries. Yeah. Okay. Wow. Right. Okay. That is definitely another reason to make sure you are all over credentials. Okay. Um, so next question. A few years ago, I had a boob job with another company and within, so not cosmetic here, another company. And within the, the year, my boobs became rock solid. They have genuinely been hard ever since. And I hate anyone touching them. Can this be fixed? And if yes, would I have to pay for basically the full thing again? Like, would it just be the, the exact same? Uh, so obviously just thinking about what the probable cause of that is, it sounds like there is a degree of capsule or capsular contracture. It is extremely rare to get that within a year. Mm. It does happen. The earliest I've seen is maybe two, two and a half years, something like that. But if it's happened within a year, then this is basically a, your body's reaction to an implant that shouldn't be there. Okay. Happen within a year. If you redo it, it's likely to happen again. And faster. All right. Okay. Interesting. Um, it, yeah, it, it, it's difficult to know the speed, but it is likely, you know, if it's happened once, it's going to happen again. Um, can it be rectified? It, you, you would have to examine that patient to determine what the actual issue was. And, you know, it, some people have implants that have been hard on one side because something's happened. They've maybe got a collection of fluid or something like that. So there are a number of different causes, but presuming it's a capsule, then the solution is going into the capsule, releasing the capsule, putting fresh implants in. We used to, years and years ago, try and take that whole capsule away, but actually we know that it comes back so frequently that we tend to try and not do that anymore by just releasing it, making that pocket a little bit bigger and putting a fresh implant in. Mm -hmm. Okay. In terms, of, in terms of costings, this is something else that you need to discuss regardless of where you decide to go. You want to know what the revisions policy is. Yes. So part of that comes down to the implant manufacturer who usually have a warranty or a guarantee against rupture, rippling and capsular contracture. But that doesn't necessarily mean that the implant company are going to pay for the whole surgery. When you're paying for surgery, you're paying for the theatre time, the anaesthetist, the theatre team, the surgeon, the implant, the recovery team, all your aftercare. It's not just that one price type thing. As much as you get a combined price, it's broken down into multiple factors. Yeah. Um, we use a company called Nagor for our implants, GC Aesthetics, um, and their warranty is probably one of the most extensive in the market. So in that situation, if it was at Cosmedicare, it would potentially be covered under your revision policy um, for up to a period of time. But at other companies, it potentially wouldn't be. So you really need to understand what's included in your revisions policy. Yeah, that's really, really important, actually, isn't it? Like 100%. Okay, right. Okay, next question. 
can and this came in from quite a few people actually can I breastfeed after getting implants whether I choose to go above or below the muscle yeah you, you can uh, okay. breastfeeding is very difficult at the best of times yes I it mean, is <laughs> <laughs> I would agree with that but it, it is possible it's probably more possible if you have it under the muscle because you're interfering a little bit less with that ductal tissue that's arising from the muscle, but mm -hmm. you can, uh, is the answer. I've had patients who can breastfeed after implants, I've had patients who couldn't breastfeed after implants. You can't tell whether it's because they've got implants, they can't breastfeed. Yeah. Uh, but uh, it, it, most patients actually ask that question. If they don't, I tell them. Yeah, because I remember that was something that I had thought about years and years ago and my mum could never breastfeed so she wouldn't mind me saying so she was like Laura you might not even be able to anyway so like you know and sometimes you just can't so okay. And sometimes the answer is different for implants than it is for maybe an uplift or a reduction or an uplift and an implant because the nipples actually been moved so it could make it a bit more difficult. Okay interesting okay right um brilliant okay so see the implants used are they all circular i'm terrified of the ball look when it comes to breast surgery victoria beckham's first boob job springs to mind <laughs> yeah i know you see her in that dress don't you like oh god it's like the pamela anderson era and then victoria beckham was a very slender woman so slim, um, uh, so slim very petite and they just look very stuck on so i mean the, the the shape and the look is determined by not just the implant itself so it's how you do it the, the the person you know how much fatty tissue you have how much muscle you have um the profile of the implant the width of the implant the manufacturer of the implant the surface of the implant and then you've got the shape so you've either got a spherical one which is round or you've got a teardrop shaped one but actually, if you put it under the muscle, it's very difficult to determine the difference anyway. So um, this is a round implant. Okay. If it moves, it's spherical. So you can't see that it's moved. Yeah. If you place it partially under the muscle, like Dan was explaining earlier on, where the top part's covered, you get that nice gradual slope. Yeah. This is a teardrop implant. So the weight of most of the volume sits at the bottom yeah. of this and you get that gradual slope there. Mm -hmm. So if you don't have any fullness or anything up here, a teardrop implant really isn't going to do anything for you and you kind of need that round implant to give you a bit more fullness up at the top a lot of people who want a natural outcome automatically think teardrop implant but that's not necessarily the right thing for them and that's why it's really important to have a surgeon who will discuss all options with you and not just say yes to whatever you come in the door because you've read it on google yep that's really interesting because I would have, but you know what I mean <laughs> no, no I know because I would have definitely assumed teardrop for a more natural look but actually your your description of that makes complete sense I mean for, for me the, there are certain patients whose look is more suitable to or breast is more suitable to a teardrop shaped implant mm -hmm. and it, it's all, I, I find it very difficult to explain why that is but I just get when I look at it I can just say well that actually probably lends itself more to that shape yeah um the other thing that springs to mind is um, different people, they've got different shaped breasts and sometimes there are issues with breasts that because nobody's seen them before, because a, a medical or a surgeon hasn't seen them before, the person's never been aware of it. Um, tubular breast syndrome probably been um, the thing that springs to mind most commonly and it's almost as if the breasts go down and straight. Mm -hmm. Sometimes the guys recommend a teardrop implant more for that because it gives more shape to the bottom portion of the breast, which is narrow. Yeah. Um, so that's one of the reasons for that as well. Okay, okay. 
again consultation is everything isn't it just to get that that everything answered okay next question do implants make it harder to detect cancerous lumps sorry a morbid question but it does hold me back a bit also does the process for checking for lumps differ if you have implants uh, so very easy answer no it, it doesn't make it harder to detect lumps in fact there's some evidence to suggest that it's easier to detect lumps okay it doesn't increase the risk of breast cancer uh what's the third part the... um does the process for checking for lumps differ same well you, you might feel lumpiness more readily if you've got an implant in there mm -hmm. so you're more likely to go and see someone about it but it it it's the same process. Yeah. One of the things that I've heard as well that sounds quite appealing to me as someone who has implants, having seen mammograms being done before, you go, oh, no, don't fancy that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that looks sore. Yes. <laughs> um, sore. The, the ultrasound, the way that they can, they can look with an ultrasound and that to me sounds like something that I would more readily go for. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, if, you, if you've got implants, you would probably have an ultrasound rather than a mammogram. Mm -hmm. It's doing okay. Yeah. And, and would you say that like the minute you said to whoever was you know helping you that you've got implants would they take that call or could you ask for it <laughs> i'm asking for it when i get there it's fairly standard, isn't it? standard right okay that's good to know um okay next question i have this mega fear of an implant bursting slash rupturing and it stops me getting the surgery even although i really do want it how would you know if this has happened and what are the next steps to rectify it could there be long-lasting internal damage if that happened? So um, implants can fail, and it's probably more fail than rupture or burst. You know, it's a very dramatic thing, and mm -hmm. I don't think I've ever seen an implant burst from okay. you know, swordfish or something like that going into the body. Yeah, quite robust things, and in the majority of the UK, good world. Get your titties in a twist. <laughs> we, Here we go. <laughs> <laughs> they've got gel in them so silicon gel and it's a very cohesive gel so if i got a knife and chopped into that nothing would happen it would just stay where it is what okay. i cut up earlier in um, oh, wow right okay in, okay in the states they use more saline filled saline filled implants and so obviously if they ruptured they would immediately deflate mm -hmm. so we do use those to a degree in breast reconstruction when we're trying to inflate the breast over a period of time if there's a lack of skin for example um, but if a breast implant ruptured, you probably wouldn't even know it. So there are lots of people with failed implants who are just walking around happily and there's no issue. Uh, okay. The other issue is the silicon issue. So silicon's perfectly safe. Um, if an implant does rupture, then you can get on a microscopic basis that silicon going beyond the implant, but it rarely goes beyond the capsule that's that scar tissue surrounding the implant very rarely it can go to a, a lymph node in the armpit or something like that but it very very rarely causes any harm at all so that's so, so interesting so interesting i just thought that like if they did rupture it would be like i mean i probably should know this stuff but i thought it would be actually be like liquid and you yeah. would be like oh what's going on so some people will notice a, maybe a change in shape or the way it feels or something just feeling not right but i would say that's probably the minority of patients mm -hmm. okay that's really interesting. Okay, and that probably puts that person that asked that question, hopefully puts their mind at rest. Um, right, okay, next question. I would say that my breast surgery was botched. I would never want to return to the place that I got it done. What is the process with Cosmedicare for fixing botched surgery? Okay, so <laughs> it depends what stage you're at 
with okay. the, your original provider. We do get a lot of people, we've got a bit of a reputation for fixed and botched jobs abroad um, because um, I dragged Dan into the daily record and it got splattered all over it. And before we knew it, we had half of turkey tips coming through Cosmedicare when everything had gone wrong abroad. Um, <clears throat> things can go wrong at home as well. Um, and again, it comes down to looking at your provider and what's involved in your aftercare. Um, people's interpretation of botched is lots of different things. Um, yeah. So they might not just be happy with the outcome. They might not be happy with our scarring. They can come to us and we, we try not to get involved in the legal process with other companies. Um, if somebody's having a surgery with us to, to have something repaired that's happened elsewhere, yes, we usually write them a letter and what they choose to do with that letter is completely up to them. Um, we look to help people as much as we possibly can. That is the whole reason that our guys are in, in surgery in the first place. But there is actually a higher cost to fixing surgery that has gone wrong than original surgery in the first place. So it really depends what's happening. If the implants are having to come out, if there's a capsule there, if things have to be sent away for pathology or histology, which is, has been sent away to be tested, um, or if there's major scarring issues and positioning issues, it really depends on what has what has gone wrong. And that's not just with breast surgery, it's with any type of surgery. Um, the process is the same as all other consultation processes. Make an inquiry, submit your images, give as much information as you possibly can. It's ideal if it's implants to know exactly what's in there. Um, we always say to anyone, try and access your medical notes from your original provider because that includes an ops note and that basically explains what the surgeon has done uh, within the operation. If you've had revisional surgery, get the op notes for both and, and bring it along and try and give our surgeons as much information as you possibly can for them to, to make a clinical decision on. Okay. I think you made, you made it the most important point and that's differentiating between something that actually physically is wrong and not being done right to that patient that's just not happy Mm -hmm. uh, or satisfied with the outcome and that that's a really subtle distinction and uh, for me it's quite difficult but universally the people who aren't happy are not happy because they haven't been explained at the beginning mm -hmm. what the likely outcome was mm -hmm. and that that's the most important thing uh, as yeah. so many patients who weren't told x y or z and that's well why didn't they say that beforehand yeah yeah um, we, we none of us are perfect all the time no. none of us can do everything right but um it's it's about trying to counsel a patient about what the limitations of surgery are uh, yeah the likely expectation it's it's difficult and you know sometimes i forget and you know, no one's perfect i know and that, i think that's the thing as well like if you can give people a realistic view of what to expect then you know you're you're aiming that's right away aiming for a happy outcome whereas if people are you know we spoke about the cleavage thing if they're automatically thinking like you know they've not been told that it might not be so big and they don't know and then yeah so they, like you say a difference between botched and just you know unhappy with and yeah. it's, it's really difficult because obviously this is a it's it's quite a small industry particularly in Scotland everybody knows each other you get two different schools I thought you get competitors that all snipe on and go oh yeah they've done that and that you should sue them and you should do this and you should do that and I think you sometimes need to take a wee bit of a step back mm -hmm. I think really what is this person's motivations for telling you that mm -hmm. and are the expectations, was it explained that maybe you require a two-stage operation or different approach, et cetera, et cetera, and maybe the person hasn't wanted to do that? There's always two sides to every story, which is why one of the reasons why we made the group, um, the private online group, so that our patients could speak to each other. We don't pick and choose what before and after pictures we're going to show. You can go on and speak to our previous patients. Um, but we're always very mindful, particularly when it is competitors, that we give an honest, balanced, 
assessment of outcomes and we would like to hope everybody would do the same. Yeah and I think also Jill like what you mentioned there about your Facebook group it's just so open and transparent and we'll post a link to it underneath this live as well but it's just a great place for anyone who's looking to get um, different types of surgeries because you've got different types of groups and like you say patients can talk to each other about their experiences and that's a really nice thing because um, it's not like you're governing what people are saying they're giving their own testimonials off their own back so and a lot of girls do their before and after pictures and everything which is also really helpful to see um, it's a great community I mean uh, not just for in the run-up to surgery but your recovery and all the emotions that go with having surgery as well to be able to speak to somebody that's maybe having it the same week as you or they've had it four or five weeks before and you're talking about the process of how the implants drop and fluff and everybody's always worried about that as well yeah how are things going to look so to have that reassurance to see people's recovery journey I think it's fantastic it's yeah. probably one of the best things we've done just the other thing to pick up on, on on a patient who's not happy or who thinks their surgery is being botched is that they've they've lost trust with the surgeon they were with to start yeah. off with the company and once that trust is broken or lost you can never get it back mm -hmm. uh and, and and i think that's important to acknowledge that as a patient mm -hmm. yeah from trying to balance this up i think so I kind of feel sorry for companies and surgeons sometimes as well because this industry sometimes gets a really bad rep um, of being maybe piling on people's insecurities or not wanting to deal with their responsibilities and things like that and I think patients can automatically think that they're going to have a fight in their hands if they're not happy good communication good dialogue not being aggressive and and coming and saying I'm not happy I would recommend that to anybody go and have a nice honest conversation calm relaxed non-accusational trying to find a solution regardless of where you've had your surgery you're going to get 10 times further to that than walking in and going i'm not happy i'm going to sue you i'm going to put it on the internet that just puts everybody in absolute fear mode because within this industry because of patient confidentiality the provider is not allowed to respond to certain things online so they just go into complete panic and their insurance companies step in and the communication is almost null and void after that. And that's not great. If you can keep open dialogue and trying to find a resolution to something, that's probably the best way that you're going to get the best outcome. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And it's funny as well, what you said about, you know, the industry getting a bad rep. Like I, I see it from like a, a client, like a customer's perspective of it. Um, and for me, like very opposite of playing on people's insecurities. It, for me, it actually made me, like wear a bikini like look forward to going on holiday like actually take my top off in front of someone else so you know that's you, you you'll have people that'll have that mindset but actually being someone who was crippled with complete low confidence it's it was revolutionary for me so it's just so important not to judge I think it's really really important not to judge because you never know what's going on behind the scenes when someone comes to get a procedure done um okay great so next question um do you've already answered this actually about you always have to be put to sleep for breast surgery hmm. well here we put people to sleep because that is the most common thing asked for people sometimes have anxieties about it but you tend to find that once our anaesthetists have spoken to them and explained the process those anxieties are reduced and things go ahead as normal i have seen in other places that people have said, oh, I was awake and having a conversation through it. That gives me the absolute fear, but that may be somebody else's preference. Yeah. We've never done it, but- yeah, I mean, it, it boils down to the semantics of type of anesthesia that you use. You know, everyone has some form of anesthesia. 
usually with local anaesthetic and then the anaesthetic to control the airway <coughs> is dependent on the, the amount of intravenous uh, sedation or anaesthesia they have. And it, there are lots of very confusing terms, even for medics. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you have sedation, which can be unconscious or conscious and no one really understands. Um, the bottom line is that the majority of breast augmentation, if we're just still talking about that, is the patient is asleep, whether that's unconscious sedation or general anesthetic. Yeah. Doesn't make any difference to us. The only person it affects is the anesthetist. Mm -hmm. Just makes it harder for him. Very get Ian on here at some point. So in one uh -huh. of our later sessions, Ian Lang is getting dragged into this. He is the safest set of hands 100%. ever. He's he's yeah. my favourite. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't hear that, Dad. You didn't hear that. <laughs> he's my favourite anesthetist, but don't tell you, Viraj. <laughs> Brilliant, right, okay. Right, next question. I read that you should consider getting implants renewed after 10 to 15 years. If I don't do this, is it dangerous to leave them in longer? Like, can they be left in for all of time? Uh, yes, they can be. Uh, we, we've changed practice probably in the last 20 years. We used to be a bit proactive about taking implants out every 10 or 12 years. <laughs> but if they're not causing any problems, we, you can leave them alone. So there, there is no urgency to remove the implants unless there's a problem with the implant or there's a problem that you're having. Mm -hmm. Some people just come along when they say, well, look, the implants have been in for 12 years. I just want them redone, yep. which is absolutely fine. And, you know, um, you know, even yesterday I took out some implants, but they were absolutely fine. They're pristine. They're 15 years old. But uh, you know, the, the patient wants a new implants and that's absolutely fine. Yes. The, the, the safety issue is that uh, silicon implants are safe. Mm -hmm. um, there are one or two types of implants where there have been recommendations to remove them. Um, but if you've got breast implants already, your manufacturer would have already contacted you. For example, the PIP implants, that's how it is. Okay. It's also worth pointing out, we were talking about ultrasounds earlier on. If I, I'm, I'm going to change my implants. I had my implants four years ago and I've decided I want to go bigger. So when we get to Livingston that time, I'm probably going to go bigger in the implants. If I was going to keep them in longer, he's going, oh God, <laughs> here we go again, going to deal with her. <laughs> do, do my boobs without looking at them. That's ridiculous. <laughs> when are you going to have time, girl? Like, when are you going to have time? I'll <laughs> maybe just live in the hospital. It'll be fine. Um, I'll have a white coat soon. <laughs> Not one matching his. <laughs> <laughs> but um, you can go and get a scan and get your implants checked to see how they are um, and I would recommend that I think that's a, a nice thing to factor into your, your health MOT to just okay. go and get a scan and make, it, make sure everything's okay you can get them privately as well that's really interesting because like Dan you said earlier on some people may be walking about and don't actually know that there's been a rupture or anything like that so okay having said that ultrasound is not 100% sensitive for breast implants and some people you can't tell, and some radiographers, radiologists can't tell, and you might need an MRI after that. Okay, okay. That's brand new information though, right? Okay, brilliant. Okay, so um, what happens when you get your implants replaced and what is the downtime? So is it just similar, you know, you're getting them replaced, is it like the same downtime as getting your first surgery? Yeah, it, it, it's variable. It depends on the degree of operating you do out with the implant. So the implant going in is usually going into the same pocket. Mm -hmm. Sometimes we have to change the pocket. Uh, sometimes we have to remove a capsule. If you have to do a total capsulectomy, that's a much bigger operation. That's three Pro hours. It's probably a bigger operation than the original operation, so your recovery is much longer. Okay. Some people have no capsule, but there's an implant problem, and you go in and just literally you're changing the implant. So it's very patient dependent. Yeah. yeah. And some people just have their implants taken out and they don't have them replaced. That is an option as well. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So 
we more recently, um, probably in the last three or four years, more women have been coming later on in life and they've decided they, they just want them out and they want a capsulectomy. And, and that's fine, we, we do that as well. There's not a lot of people that do capsulectomies privately, so it's, it's something that we're no, quite well known for. So tell me, what is a capsulectomy? So ectomy just means removal. Capsule okay. is that thing, that scar tissue that forms around the implant. Okay. So capsulectomy is just removal of that capsule, which is slightly okay. different to a capsulotomy. Otomy just means making a hole in. So uh, okay. what we were going back to earlier was talking about capsules recurring. Mm -hmm. So there's not a lot of point in taking out the capsule, capsulectomy, if it's going to come back. So we tend to do more capsulotomy than capsulectomy. Okay. See, this is just a, a curveball question for myself. See, if someone was to come and say, I just want my implants out, you know, that I've just that's what I want, would there be excess skin there? Like, would that be quite... Usually, it, it depends on the, the implant that's been in there. If you have a big implant yeah. and you don't have much, much breast tissue in the beginning, the likelihood is that you're going to have some, some excess skin. Usually, there's a period of time that's gone by as well, so you've lost the elasticity in the skin. You're basically tissue expanding the, the breast skin, and uh, it will recoil to a degree, mm -hmm. but you don't know whether that's going to be sufficient. In an ideal world, you want to take the implants out, wait nine months for the skin to completely shrink back mm -hmm. and then see what to do then. But most people want a you know, one-off solution. So okay. it's, it's sometimes challenging. <clears throat> yeah, I can imagine. But again, as we as we keep saying, like your, your consultation to discuss your options is where that will come out. Okay, am I able to go from an A to a D in one round of surgery? Yes. What you can't do a lot of the time and this, this is, I love bigger boobs, right? I, I, a lot of people like more voluptuous figures, especially if you're not size eight. So we do get a lot of people coming and they want big, big boobs. Sometimes there's not enough skin there for them to actually be able to do that. I've seen in theater the guys struggling to actually get it closed. And if they'd went any bigger, they would probably get it closed, which means get it down and get it sutured. But whether that's going to stay that way, that's very dicey we don't like taking risks we would rather be safe mm -hmm. do things in two stages um and we do have patients return after a period of time after having quite big implants in already mm -hmm. to go back again okay Wait, it, it, it's probably an experience thing it's one of these very few things where actually experience is quite useful and someone will come and they're you know they've almost decided that they want 520s and they're they're very tight, young skin, and there's just absolutely no way that I know that I'll be able to put them in. Okay. I don't know that because I've maybe struggled on such and such a case. And, you know, yeah. um, but it is quite subjective. But moving several cup sizes is usually possible. It's very rare that you get a patient that has really tight, young, youthful skin. And it's a compliment to have that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but, but usually it's not an issue. The patient can usually go to a size that they wish. Mm -hmm. If, if you could see how surgery is done, and I'm sure at one point we, I might be able to talk them into letting me do this, even if I need to film my own, right? But we use this thing called a, a Keller funnel. So a Keller funnel almost looks like a turkey baster, like a cake baster. Um, so the implant comes in a box and no human hand actually touches the implant. So the, the cleaning solution goes in the box, it swivels about, and then the box is tipped into the, the funnel. And the funnel has got a tiny, tiny wee nozzle like that. And when they make the incision, it's then pushed through. So not only is the incision smaller and no hand has touched the um, the implant, which it helps prevent any infection, but also allows maybe larger implants to go through a smaller hole, which helps. 
Well, that's really interesting. It's interesting to get behind the scenes like that. Really, really cool. I don't know there's more than two meanings for a diva. Not a diva, a diva. Is that what it's called? A diva retractor. It's strange looking. <laughs> oh, okay. Like, this is like really learning in this conversation, guys. Thank you. Um, right, okay. So I had surgery years ago. At the time, I asked for a C cup, but when I was measured in a bra shop, I was told I was an E cup. How can that be? And I think you touched on it with regards to the CC. Mm -hmm. So I, I liken this to, I try and take it away from boobs altogether. So, mm -hmm. you know, as women, when you get into different shops, what size you measure in jeans and Topshop is completely different to River Island, completely yes. different to Marks and Spencers. People fitting for bras, Marks and Spencers, I love Marks and Spencers post-operative surgery bras. I think they're fantastic. I think Marks and Spencers is probably the worst place you can go to get measured for your bra because everybody walks out a D cup. Okay. I mean, we have ladies come in for breast reductions and they tell me they're a 36D out of Marks and Spencers and they come in and they must be about an F. Okay. And they've been squeezing themselves into these D cup bras. Really going and investing and getting good measurement in your bras is you might not even want a boob job if you just wear the right bra. Mm -hmm. So I would definitely go and invest in getting good measurements in a in a good bra shop. Okay, interesting, right? Okay. Um, yeah, uh, that is because you do get a different size and different places. Okay, right. So this is the last question on the augmentation and implant side of things. What are what are the reasons a person might not be eligible to get breast augmentation augmentation surgery and what could go wrong? So I'm going to speak from the medical side and then I'll speak from female side of what okay. flags I see and go, oh, oh this isn't good. Uh, okay, so what I guess you can separate it into medical reasons and you can break them down into physical medical reasons or maybe psychiatric medical reasons. Mm -hmm. um, certain patients may have conditions, for example, body dysmorphia, that type of thing. That's a very specific group of patients and it's a very small group of patients. And trying to identify those patients is almost impossible. Um, but moreover, there may be medical conditions that you have that might preclude you from having surgery might be on medications to maybe thin the blood because of a heart condition, something like that. So there are some very obvious things that are not absolute contraindications, but maybe relative contraindications to surgery. <clears throat> okay. Um, what was the, oh, things that can go wrong. I mean, how long have you got? I, I spend okay. the entire consultation trying to put people off. <laughs> okay. It's, not, it's, it's really depressing, you know, it's doom and gloom, and I, but I just want to paint, you know, the worst picture. If this happens, would you be able to cope? Yeah. You know, and if you can't, then, you know, it's a very, some patients come in, they're not sure where they want surgery, but actually a good test of that is if you, if you've been told a complication by your surgeon and you're not ready or willing to deal with that, then surgery is not the right thing for you. Okay. Um, and there are lots of things that can go wrong with surgery and we break them down. I mean, this is like an exam question into immediate complications, late complications, uh, interruptive complications, complications specific to the implants, to mm -hmm. the procedure, yeah. to the aesthetic. I mean, it, it, you know, you can write a book on it. People have written books on it. Okay. okay. <laughs> but the majority of patients, when they get to that point where they've been approved for surgery, they're ready to go, don't have any problems at all. Mm -hmm. And 97% of patients will not have any issues. Okay. The big issues, I suppose, with implants are risk of infection, risk of bleeding, hematoma formation around surgery in the early term, and then the capsular contracture later on. Okay. 
Okay, and we, we co we've covered quite a lot of that as well in the, in the chat that we've had. Okay, Jill, from a, from a female perspective. <laughs> women, I can say this because I'm a woman, all right? So let's, we'll, we'll speak openly. Yes. <laughs> a lot Let's of people do. that come and as part of the conversation, just when you're talking to them on the phone, just split up with a partner. Um, my pal's just had their boobs done. Have you been thinking about getting this done for ages? No, but my pal's just had it done and I want the same. I don't want to be the one left out. I'm going to a wedding and I don't want to be the one looking flat chested and things like that. Those to me are the start of red flags. Not that it's an absolute no after that, but it's really thinking about why you actually want to do this. And are you 100% sure? Because we get people phone up and they're like, I want your soonest date available. There's a two week cooling off period from when we speak to the surgeon. And that is to allow you to process all the information. As soon as we send you your quote, we also send the consent form so that you're not just seeing it on the day. We send you aftercare information. We send your terms and conditions, get the re revision policy in there. We send as much information as possible. It baffles me how many people do not read that. Mm -hmm. You're going for an operation. You're not jumping in for a facial. Yeah. You really need to look at things and think about your reasons as to why you're doing things. If you've just had a death in the family, yeah, start your research, but do it in three, six, nine months. Have the actual operation then when you're in a better emotional state. Yeah. Any sort of change right after a loss or a massive change in, in your life can be quite traumatic from a mental health point of view. And the last thing you want to do is jump in and give yourself another emotional roller coaster in some, on top of something else. Yeah. So just chill and think about it. Um, we get people getting in contact with us. They're still pregnant and they're like, I want a tummy tuck as soon as the baby's born. There's reasons why you can't do that. Mm -hmm. now, having had a kid myself, I completely understand why people want to do it, but there's reasons why you shouldn't. And it's not all just about the medical part, it's about the emotional part as well. So my best advice is if you want to have surgery, somebody round about you that definitely does not want you to have it, bring that person with you mm -hmm. and let them listen to the, the whole chat and talk through why you're wanting to have surgery, alleviate all their concerns, and then you're really in a position to be thinking about booking a surgical date. Yeah, yeah. Patient care is just so at the top of everything that you do, isn't it? So it has to be. It has to be. Right, okay. So now we're going to move on to reductions. So we've got, I've got a good few questions in about reductions. So could you again just give us a wee I know it's not a wee procedure, but like an overview of of the procedure, a standard one. It's my favourite. It's a big procedure. It's a big, a big procedure. <laughs> yeah, it can be very big. Yeah. So um, you, you want to talk about the re reductions? Uh, yeah, I mean, it, you know, breast reduction is probably the most satisfactory operation from a patient's point of view to have. Um, if you look at outcomes universally, the majority of patients are happy. Uh, and that's something probably to do with the fact that part of it is functional, uh, part of it is aesthetic, and you know, knowing what the patient wants from surgery is, is you know, really important in a breast reduction. The consultation process is exactly the same. Um, knowing what a patient wants in terms of the outcome is the most important question. Uh, the patient group, I guess, compared to breast augmentation is perhaps a little bit broader, so we get very young to very old patients. Um, but the process is the same. The operation takes a little bit longer. The risks are probably fairly similar. Um, the scarring is a little bit different and there are probably a lot more ways to do a breast reduction than there are breast augmentation. Mm -hmm. Okay, <clears throat> interesting. 
Dan really pointed in something important there as well, the age demographic of the patients. From breast reduction procedures, we can have girls as young as 17 turning 18 coming in here and they've got really, really big boobs that are getting in the way of maybe their physical exercise or them pursuing the career that they want to have. We get quite a lot of dancers, ballet dancers even, coming in um, and, and wanting to have their breast reduced for that. Quite up to 68-year-old ladies who are just sick of carrying them about. They've got indentations in their shoulders from wearing the bras. And for me, it's, it's one of the most rewarding procedures. Oh, I can imagine. I can imagine. And so in terms of like breast reduction, how do how do you take do you take out how does that part work? Do you take out tissue? I brought a chart and like when Dan does his consultations, in fact, when all of our surgeons do their consultations, they draw and explain things to you. Uh, yeah, I mean I've had a bit of practice of explaining because I've had to phone people about it. So. <laughs> <laughs> The, the, it achieves three, breast reduction achieves three things. You're you're moving the nipple usually upwards. You are removing excess skin, and then you're removing excess breast tissue. Mm -hmm. And those are the three things that are going to reduce the size of your breast. Most of the breast tissue is removed from the lower side of the breast. Um, the nipple moves upwards, and then the type of scarring is determined by how much excess skin and what sort of directions they they, they are in. Um, so yeah, they're the, they're the three aspects, moving the nipple, removing excess skin, moving the breast tissue. And then that breast tissue, you routinely get sent off to the lab and they'll chop it up and make sure that there's, uh, everything is behaving within that sample. Okay, okay. Right, brilliant. So we'll, we'll move on to some questions from the community. How to fix it. Um, our screen has We've gone very small and I can't see you, um, but I'm scared to touch anything in case I break it. <laughs> remember last time Jill you were just doing that now. oh I've lost us as well oh god right okay I don't know Nobody, I can still see you <laughs> still see us and I'll double check in the group as well let me see I can see us but I can't see you oh what I'm missing your lovely hair <laughs> yes no I, I think I can see it. it's all I think we're still we're still going fine so perfect right. perfect so this lady has said I have a massive fear of being put to sleep but really do feel like my self-esteem and confidence would benefit from having breast reduction surgery, do you recommend anything to get over the fear of being put to sleep? Talking about it. Okay. Yeah. So, it, it, I mean, it's quite a common complaint and I spend a little bit of time trying to figure out why they're afraid. Mm -hmm. you, you know, it might be something, you know, they had a, a relative that went into hospital, had an anaesthetic uh, and, you know, it was a bad outcome or something like that. So it's kind of put that into a context. context. There's usually a reason um, anesthetics are perfectly safe nowadays and they're very different from what they were 30 years ago mm. so it's, it's knowing that context I think is the most important thing be reassured that they are safe though um, from speaking yeah. to a lot of people what I tend to find is that they're scared of the process of being put to sleep mm -hmm. so they might be scared of getting the jag in their hands so we can put emla cream on that we get the squishy freezy stuff we can't feel it we distract you whilst you're in theatre there's somebody holding your hand and talking to you most of the girls in the group talk about people doing this them whilst they're going to whilst they're going to sleep and I'm like okay that's a bit weird but it seems to really relax people and help them that they've got that reassurance someone there the anaesthetists spend a lot of time with you before um going into the the operating room they're usually with you for about 15-20 minutes and they explain the process of what it's like to be put to sleep um I think the more control we can give to a patient and I think an element of being put to sleep is the fear of loss of control, that you're not in control of a situation. So if we can help patients as much as we possibly can in that process, then that tends to um, alleviate fears as well. 
Yeah, uh, really and I guess the other thing we can do is alert the anaesthetist to the fact that the patient might be very anxious. Mm -hmm. so you can sometimes have a chat with them. Mm -hmm. Very rarely, of course, you can use drugs and uh, you know you can get your GP to prescribe maybe a small sedative or something like that prior to the procedure. So mm -hmm. there are things that can be done to address it. Okay, brilliant. But just communication, definitely key. <clears throat> okay, brilliant. So this lady has said, I have a massive bosom. If I was to undergo a reduction, what happens to all the excess skin? The physical part. So one of the physical parts of it, and I've found this really interesting. So I used to manage a hospital previously and I never really seen what went on in the theatres. Dan's like, oh God, <laughs> what's she going to say? Um, basically, you're, so when they take off the skin, they have to weigh it. So it gets weighed and it gets looked at and it goes in this jar. And I'm, I love taking pictures of things like this for patients. And I give them to the patients because we would never share it without consent. Mm -hmm. And you know, when you go to Weight Watchers, it looks like that big lump of lard that they give you to show you how much weight you've lost. Yeah, That's what breast tissue looks like. Um, It almost looks like, like a yellow brain. And that's what that's what goes in this um, tub to be weighed. And then it goes into a canister, like a soup canister, Tupperware, and it gets sent off to the hospital to be tested. So there's been many a times where I've had tubs of tits in my car driving down the M8 to drop it into histology. Wow, right, okay. And what is it, what is it getting tested for? Uh, looking for any unusual cancerous cells, basically. Right, okay, okay. Just, it's quite uh, reassuring to it, know that they do there's a little bit of controversy and, and some parts of the world will not bother doing that and you know if you're asymptomatic and there's nothing unusual macroscopically looking at it why would you bother sending it to the lab um i, I think i've seen one patient ever in my career where a, a routine breast reduction has come back with abnormal cells and obviously if that happens that puts you into a different pathway mm -hmm. um you must warn a patient that's going to happen but uh, it's incredibly unusual okay Okay. Um, right. Okay. Next question. If I had breast reduction surgery, is it possible to give my boobs a better shape to what I have now with the 3D scan technology that Cosmedicare have helped me see how they would look? Uh, the, the, the 3D scanner is superb for making things bigger and breast enlargement. That's the original reason why it was, it was built, basically. Jill is a whiz uh, doing breast reductions as well. Um, there's a little bit of artistic license that the camera uses and the shape is one of those things where it's a very subtle thing and the way that you do a breast reduction can change the shape dramatically in terms of the outcome and I think the most important thing for that person to put the question in is telling the surgeon what the shape is what they don't like about the shape what shape they want mm -hmm. and that's achievable to do that with a breast reduction in a standard breast reduction it tends to flatten things down tends to be a little bit more boxy it's with a particular type of technique it can change the shape in various ways so uh again you know, knowing what what your fear is about the outcome or what shape you don't like and knowing the limitations from the surgical point of view about what's achievable that means you're on the same page i think my biggest concern with the 3d scanner for uplift implant surgery and for reduction surgery is that initially things sit up quite high, particularly from the side profile, and you look as if you've got a good bit of cleavage, but as with anything, it's going to drop down and settle into place and expand out the way. Um, <clears throat> so trying to reiterate that across in the communication so that there's realistic expectations that things aren't going to sit a way, way up like this um, for a, a long, long period of time is, is probably the bit that I find most difficult because it's unpredictable. You don't know how the skin's going to react. You don't know how the weight of the tissue is going to react. So it's, it's a bit of science and a bit of art combined. 
Yeah, yeah. Okay, brilliant. So this is the last question, I think, on reductions. What are the reasons a person might not be able to get it? So a similar question to the last one before, and what could go wrong? So I guess it's a similar answer. Yeah, pr pretty similar. Again, I spent the entire time talking about the negative sides of breast reduction. <laughs> <Pretty negative laughs> person. <laughs> but, uh, when, so. when, we, when we first started together, um, a way back when I was running the Edinburgh Clinic, I would put patients in front of Dan and Will and the other guys and would sit and listen and go, oh my God, this lady's not going to want to have anything by the time they're finished. But over time and very quickly, I realised it's best that everybody knows up front what all the risks are. Yeah, nine times out of ten they don't happen but I think education information is empowerment and that's one of our, our models in it and it's what we've stuck to for since inception so I really like that the guys take the time to talk that through. I mean a, a breast reduction is a much more significant operation than breast augmentation it's a big operation there's a bigger potential space to bleed into for example um, as I said before the, 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 the range of patients range from very young to quite old um, and therefore along with that come more medical comorbidities uh, more risks and that side of things so um, yeah. yeah the other thing about breast reduction surgery is we get a lot of ladies have come to us have been refused breast reduction surgery in the NHS I'm not going to go into the whole NHS pathway I think everybody's got their own political ideas on that and what they think should be available in the NHS and what they what shouldn't BMI, so the body mass index, is something that frequently comes up and it tends to come up quite a lot in breast reduction patients because if you can imagine as a female, if you have got a large chest, then you're probably going to have a higher BMI than 30. Yeah. And sometimes over 35. And a lot of times that's an automatic reason for saying no from the NHS. Um, our BMI uh, caps vary depending on what facility you're in. Um, at Edinburgh Park, which is where we are just now, it's a BMI cut off of 30. Livingston's 35 um, and if you've got a higher BMI than that it doesn't necessarily mean it's a definite no for surgery but there's steps that we need to put in place to make sure that you're going to be safe as well. That, that, that's an anaesthetic yeah. uh, risk. The, yeah. the, the, you raised a very good point in the BMI and I'm annoyed that I missed that but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but BMI is a really good predictor of, of uh, complications mm -hmm. and it's well known that if your BMI is below 30 you're in a relatively lower risk group between 30 and 35, you're in a high risk. And 35 and above, you're in a very high risk group. And that's for all cosmetic operations, not breast reduction. Yeah. People okay. who have breast reductions tend to be a little bit heavier and actually their breasts are quite heavy as well. It's not uncommon mm -hmm. to take two kilograms off weight, mm -hmm. which could immediately affect your BMI. So, I mean, the BMI is a crude indicator and it's not always reflective of the patient. And actually looking at a patient is probably better than a BMI, but mm -hmm. it does give a quantifiable measure of your risk of surgery and we're very sensitive when we're speaking to people about their weight um we don't want anyone to come for consultation and leave feeling worse than when they walked in the door so yeah. we're very sensitive about how we discuss this and things that we put in place and suggestions that we make um i myself used to be a lot heavier i've, I've not had the fact that i've had a gastric band and i was much heavier than what i am now about 10 years ago so i know the struggles people go through to lose weight mm -hmm. and we don't ever want anyone to feel that they need to be uh, a certain type of person to be able to get surgery it's, that's not the case it's a safety aspect and we just want to make sure that, that you're safe and healthy yeah the, the hardest thing is telling someone that they're not a candidate for surgery currently and it and it happens relatively regularly mm -hmm. for, for me it's almost yeah. you know, it's impossible isn't it? but it tends to happen more when people want combined procedures because it's a longer anesthetic and 
really the risk factors go up because of the BMI. Um, so it's so if you're looking to have breast and tummy together, that's a, usually about a four hour operation. So to have that and your airway be maintained for you during that time and different things like that, it's 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 not ideal. Yeah, com complications and stuff go up. Yeah, you can imagine that. Okay, but great. Again, we come back to communication and just having an open dialogue with you guys. So, right, okay, nipple surgery. Now, some of these questions we might have actually covered, but okay, nipple surgery. So, well, I'll go straight into the questions because they are quite different, the, the types, isn't there? So, it's, it's a bit of the breast that not many people actually think about, but it makes such a difference to the aesthetic appearance. It's, it's strange. It's almost, it's all, it is one, like almost the main thing, isn't it? Kind of, but right, okay. So this lady said, my nipples are massive and they make me super self-conscious. My areolas are no joke, bigger than Percy Pig Sweets from M&S. <laughs> I do flying saucers. I usually hear, they look with flying saucers. I'm like, oh my God. <laughs> flying saucers, flying saucers. Can I get the areola? One of my friends says hers look like um, chocolate, chocolate chip cookies. I'm like that. That's quite the picture. Thank you. Can I get the areola area reduced in size by any chance? And if yes, what is the scarring likely to be? Uh, so usually when a patient comes in saying the areola is big, it's usually because of another reason. So either there's a congenital problem where, as Jill mentioned earlier, they maybe have tuberous breasts or something like that, where the areola is very large and there's a constriction underneath there and a breast is very small. Or they've got a heavy breast that almost needs a reduction and it's just expanded everything. So that's the areola. Areolas, as part of a reduction in a mastopexy, are automatically reduced in size. To a and specific there, number. And, which... there are, and there are very different, lots of different ways of doing that. Um, nipples are different. So nipples can be reduced to whatever size you want them to be. Some people's nipples are prominent, some people's aren't. After a breast reduction, your nipple projection tends to go down anyway. So as part of a large areola with a very protruding nipple, if you just had a mastopexy type procedure, it would probably reduce both of those, even without touching the nipple. Mm -hmm. There's a couple of wee things that you can do at home um, and the guys cover this in consultation and I, I love sharing these wee tidbits mm -hmm. with people. So when they're reducing the areola, it goes down to 4.5 millimeters, centimeters. Uh, I mean, it starts off, yeah, 42, 45. So they, they use this thing, it's called a, a nipple marker, and it's a, a piece of metal that's like this, and they dip it into dye, and then they dip it so that they get a round mm -hmm. um, marker left on the, the, the nipple, not the nipple, the areola, mm -hmm. as to where they're going to cut around. Sometimes when they cut around that and you look at it, you go, mm, that looks a funny shape, but it's because of circular sutures put in there. So this is something that people are usually on the phone to me three days after breast reduction surgery going, have you seen the shape of this? As it heals, it kind of expands out again. It goes back into a circular shape. Um, so that's one of the, the first things. Um, and obviously the measurements as well and where the nipple is meant to be positioned. So when I was being taught to give people information about this, there's a measurement that you can do that is halfway down your forearm and bring it across and that's where the top of your nipple should sit or the other way to do it is if you go to the fold underneath your breast stick your finger up and push there like that where the two would meet is where the nipple's meant to sit interesting so, and, yeah. and is that is, is that like the obviously the, the center bits the nipple and then the, the areola that so that's where the actual nipple interesting okay there's another wee thing that, that i say to people as well when they're coming for a breast reduction or an uplift procedure um, obviously take your before and after pictures and everything else but see if you just get a plain white t-shirt 
take your bra off, put the t-shirt on and get a black ink marker, mark where your boobs sit in and draw around where the nipple is. And then after you've had your surgery, wait about two weeks and do the same and you'll see the difference as to how far they've travelled. Interesting, okay. Yeah, that sounds like a really, a really good marker, okay. Right, so next question then. I like my boobs, but I hate my nipples. They sit too low. Is it possible to get surgery just to move them and nothing else? Uh, yep, it is. I mean, nipples tend to sit low because of a skin problem and maybe a change in weight and the elasticity in the skin, uh, but you can move the nipple. It's a very similar thing to a mastopexy uh, or a breast uplift. It, it's almost a bit of a misnomer, a breast uplift, because you're not lifting the breast truly. You're lifting the lower part of the breast upwards and the lower part of the breast is usually where the nipple is so um it, it, it again boils sort of down to what you want to call things but generally speaking an uplift a nipple lift uh, very similar procedures in the way that you do things it's going to throttle me for bringing this up because when when i see someone obviously i, I usually see the pictures before the surgeons see and i use the wrong terminology so it's called a donut lift or a Bellini, it's not a Bellini nipple lift, right? But I call it a Bellini nipple lift because I can never pronounce it right. What's the proper word? Benelli. Benelli. A Benelli, oh, like Liza Benelli, but with B. Benelli, right, okay. Not Bellini, which is a drink. Um, it, it's just a type of uplift where you avoid the vertical scar going down mm -hmm. from the nipple to the inframammary, inframammary mm -hmm. fold. And I'm going to hear half of Glasgow's ears prick up going, oh, you can get an uplift without that vertical scar yeah. because everybody wants no, that, but no, you're not most people, suitable Most for people it. can't have that. Oh, right, okay. And why why could you not have that? Because you can only move the nipple about half a centimetre to a centimetre. Okay. It's a mini lift, kind of. It's a mini lift. They're really difficult to do as well. So. Okay. And it, it's quite a good way to reduce uh, the excess skin. And if you've got large areola, then combining that with that, it's it's quite a good, good technique. Okay, interesting. Right, okay. Next question. After getting breast surgery years ago, I feel like my nipples got bigger. Is that even possible? So I suppose, I think areola would be talking about there potentially. Uh, yeah, so areolas, yes, they would stretch because the, the skin will stretch. Nipples probably didn't change, but they're probably more sensitive, <laughs> uh, more reactive, and they are obviously now protruding. So, uh, I mean, it's difficult to comment on an exact case without seeing it, but... Yeah tends to happen but the areolas areola will certainly stretch with the breast augmentation yeah okay. even patients who've had an augmentation with an uplift they're 42 millimeters in a year's time maybe 52 millimeters uh, so there, there, there are lots of things that can change following okay. 52 centimeters that's like half the height of the wall what am i talking i know i'm when i'm thinking of i've seen 52 my spatial awareness is terrible i wasn't listening <laughs> <laughs> numbers i'm like oh no i don't get it at all um right no, no, no. that much procedure for lifts then guys that's the next thing is that what's the kind of standard procedure to do a lift uh i, I would say there is no standard procedure for an uplift okay uh, I have my preferred way of doing it in a particular patient, but there, there, there's no standard. It's a much more complex. I mean, it's the holy grail of plastic surgery. Okay. Trying gravity. to hold things up against against gravity. Yeah. And, it's uh, like that frozen song. You, know, you, you can never win. Okay. Okay. So there, there it goes, Dad, talking us all out again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You can never win. 
procedure in terms of how they do the procedure to a layman person watching it looks the exact same as a breast reduction, but they're not yeah, taking away there, as much there, volume. There's there are so many ways of doing it. I mean, the key for me is again, you're 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 moving the nipple upwards, you're taking away excess skin, but unless you reduce the size in an uplift, then you're gonna have the same weight and the same effect of gravity. Mm -hmm. and so the nipple's gonna be higher, but the breast is gonna bottom out a little bit. Mm -hmm. uh, and that, you know, it's not rocket science. Mm -hmm. uh, so for me, an uplift as part of that will take away a little bit of volume as well. And it won't lift the whole breast. It won't change that footprint. So the mm -hmm. footprint stays where it is. And some people have low set breasts. Some people have high set breasts. Uh, and again, this is you know, the majority of the time that I spend in a consultation, apart from telling the doom and gloom of surgery, is pointing out what they're like now and what yeah. the expectations and limitations of that uplift are. Yeah so important isn't it just to get that information right okay so we've got a couple of questions on lifts um my boobs have always been really full but they have they have dropped a lot as i've got older makes me really self-conscious would you recommend an uplift alone if the volume is okay uh i, I presume as, a, as an alternative to using implants yeah i mean if you've got good volume then there's no reason to have an implant mm -hmm. but you know it, it, you can, I can usually simulate in a clinic with the patient what the expected outcome is, in particular with the upper pole. And some patients might want a little bit more volume at the upper pole. And sometimes the only way you can do that longer term is with a small implant. Okay, okay, that's really interesting. Um, and the next question was, I'm considering breast surgery, but I'm not sure if I would need an uplift alongside implants. How can you tell that? Um, so presume that patient wants implants, but they're not sure whether they'll need an uplift or not. I mean, this is the most difficult thing for me and probably for a lot of plastic surgeons is determining which patients need an uplift, which don't in that group of patients that is borderline. I always say there's, there's three groups of patients. There's those patients that have no breast tissue and they 100% don't need an uplift. Just implants will do the trick. There are those patients where their nipples are around by their knees and they clearly need an uplift and if you just put an implant in those patients, it would look ridiculous. Mm -hmm. And then there's a group in the middle where even you're not sure by looking at them whether they would get away without an uplift or whether they would need an uplift. There are ways of doing a breast augmentation to try and maximize the chance of them not needing an uplift. But it's a difficult situation because you have a situation where you're not sure of the outcome. You have to tell the patient they're not, you're not sure of the outcome. And there's always a consequence to that. And um, it, 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 you know, it, it, it used to be done in a stage procedure anyway. So if you had a mastopexy, you wouldn't have mastopexy and implants at the same time because of the risk profile of that operation. And as an operation, it's a very difficult operation. It's probably the most difficult one we do aesthetically. And there's about a 20% revisional risk of that operation. So either repositioning an implant or uh, redoing a scar. And that probably just describes to you how difficult that operation is, but it's an accepted worldwide number. Whereas if you do it as a separate uplift and then implant, that's 100%. So actually, if you if you look at it that way, people go for that. Yeah. Uh, and there's yeah. limitations in sizes and things as well. And that's yeah. usually when you, a lot of people just want one operation, one recovery. It's more cost effective to do it in one procedure, but it's really about manage, trying to manage the expectations of what's achievable within that operation. And that can be very subjective. It's, it's quite tricky. I know that a lot of the times the guys ask me to separate the breast group into people who are just having implants um, and people are having uplifts and implants um, because it's, it's, a, it's a different recovery process. It's a different type of operation. There's different risks. 
um, it's, it's just a different experience altogether. Yeah. Um, but we found that having everybody in together is, is a better way of doing it. Yeah, yeah, okay. Right, okay, it's learning so much tonight. Okay, so we've had some questions relating to male to female breast surgery and female to male um, breast surgery as well. So my best friend is about, so this is procedure of male to female breast surgery. My best friend is about to start her journey and finally be who she was born to be. I seen from the post, so that was the post about because Medicare and also Dan, your credentials as well, um, that you're known for carrying out transgender surgery. So can you talk through the process of building and creating her breasts? Um, so in, in terms of actually creating breast tissue, that is very similar to someone who has a lack of breast tissue and you're, you're you know, usually using implants. One or two other things that you can do in a particular suitable patient is depending on the patient's body habitus. Um, but a lot of the process that probably you're asking about is that process leading up to surgery. And we have a very well-trodden pathway um, that Joe can probably go into more detail mm -hmm. about, about uh, assessments of patients and the suitability of those patients to surgery. And it's a very sensitive, difficult area uh, and is something even on the NHS is very poorly described. Um, but we, we, we have a pathway that a patient must go through to get to that point of having surgery. The surgery, again, I'm, I'm just a technician, the surgery actually is relatively straightforward. It's more complex than, than maybe a straightforward augmentation, but um, it's that process leading up to that that's the important thing. I think both of us having worked in the NHS, myself at Sandyford with the gender clinic, um, and obviously I've been really open to the fact that my own child is trans, um, yeah. female transition. It can be a very frustrating and long drawn out process. Um, and I, I know everything that goes along with that. There are reasons that some of these things are there in place. And I, I'm not I'm not one of these people that thinks that people are going to change their mind about transitioning. I, I don't really buy into that. Um, that's my own personal opinion. But in terms of a medical perspective, there has to be a process that you go through in terms of living as your chosen gender and whether you're on hormones or not and how long you've been on those hormones because those affect the, the distribution of fat to your body. And then if you jump in too early and you put implants in there and the hormones haven't taken full effect, then there's, there's different risks and things with that. Um, Social transition is a really important part of the transitional process. Um, there's a lot of things you can do before you have surgery. I did this with my own child. I didn't just let her jump in. Yeah. The worst thing you can possibly have when your child is trans is a cosmetic surgery company. It is not like saying no to an iPhone. I heard that every single day for four years. Um, and we went through counselling. There was psychology involvement. There is endocrinology, which is where the blood hormones need to be tested. Medically, everything needs to be really, really stable before you step foot into an operating theatre. Um, and you need to be ready for that transitional process. Family support is key as well. Mm -hmm. So our process, as much as it may be faster than the NHS, it still meets the key markers. There's psychological involvement. Um, you need a gender dysphoria diagnosis. <clears throat> you need to be signed off as suitable for surgery. Now, we do have links with um, private psychiatrists and private psychologists who can help with that. Um, we do accept referrals from external companies, but I can honestly say, and it, it used to give me the absolute fear, some of the referrals that we used to see from some of these companies that had put quite young people on hormones, I think Dan gave the, the feedback, this could have been written by a sympathetic granny, there was no medical history in there whatsoever, there was no blood testing done, no hormone testing, 
nothing whatsoever. For us to go ahead and start giving surgeries like that would be medically unethical. And it's 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 really difficult to have those conversations. We're happy to support people through that pathway, but we do need everything in place before we embark down that journey with you. And we hope that we would see you right through to the end. Um, as I said, there's lots of different things that you can do prior to surgery and we look to help facilitate that as well. But when it comes to the surgery, we need to keep ourselves right to keep our, our trans patients right as well. Absolutely. That sounds like a really, really good overview of, you know, what to expect if someone's starting out in their journey and and also to be able to, to speak to someone like you, Jill, who's got the actual first-hand experience of it as well. Yeah, um, and what we've done as well is this isn't an equality tick box exercise for us at Medicare. I think me even saying my own personal circumstances kind of tells you how much involvement we've got in this. Um, one of our pre previous patients now actually works for us and she helps facilitate the trans um, journey and she can speak from personal experience what that's like and I remember when she first came to us she she was like oh why do I have to do this and why do I have to do that now that she's seen it from a different point of view she completely understands that so to have someone who's gone through the process be able to facilitate those conversations definitely helps because I was kind of starting to look like the big bad mama that was saying no to everything um but when we can explain it and and Dan himself speaks about medical ethics and responsibilities um, and all of his consultations, more so with the trans community to make sure that everybody understands why we do what we do. Um, and it, it's been very well received by, by all communities. So we're really happy with that. Oh, brilliant, brilliant. Okay, great. So male to female, female to male breast surgery then, the question came in, how could I expect my chest to look after transitioning and getting surgery? So that's from female to male. Mm -hmm. If you have a look on our website, there's two divisions. There's one for male to female, which is a man, a genetic male transitioning to a trans woman through surgery. And then there is a, se a separate section that's called FTN, which is female to non-binary, um, because sometimes they don't want to identify as a particular gender. They just want the chest removed so that they're not binding and things. Yeah. Uh, or female to, to male transitional surgery, um, which is also known as FTM. And there is so many different ways of doing that particular surgery that when you go to the drop down menu, there must be about 30 different, different things. Okay. From double incision from fishtail incision from, uh, it's not fishtail, it's some other surgical <laughs> technique. Fishmouth, I don't, I don't know. But these are terms that have been coined by the community to describe scarrings. They're not medical terminologies. So the best way to find out what's going to be the best suited procedure for you, particularly for the female to male transitions, is to come and speak to the surgeon because it depends what you're starting out with. If somebody's an A cup, it's a lot easier to get them down flat. If somebody's a D E cup, it's a lot more difficult. What I tend to say to people now is plan for it to be a two stage journey. If you get there in one, then fantastic, but plan to have a wee tweak and that's included in your costumes most commonly as well. That's really, really interesting, okay. Brilliant. And then the final element of breast surgery that we're going to have a quick chat about then is reconstructive surgery, um, which is obviously, you know, a, a, a big <laughs> part of breast surgery. So this question came in. Um, my mum had a double mastectomy a couple of years ago and is ready for breast reconstruction surgery. She's not a big internet user and so asked me to ask this and we'll be watching the live. Where do you usually take the skin to make the new breasts? Uh, okay, so in that patient, I mean, th there are different ways to do mastectomies. Uh, it sounds like that patient may have had the nipples removed 
and therefore a big amount of skin removed as well. Um, replacing the skin can be done in a number of different ways. There, there are essentially, from a reconstructive point of view, three ways of doing things. So you have to recreate the mound, but you also have to recreate the skin that you've lost as well, and then the nipple, so the icing on the cake. Mm -hmm. um, in terms of reconstruction, it's either based with an implant alone, uh, and that implant will take the form of what we call an expander implant. So you basically put in a deflated implant with a port, and then you inflate it over a period of time because there is not enough skin there to accept a big implant. Uh, and that's an implant-based reconstruction. So when that is expanded, you overexpand the reconstruction, and then you take the implant out, put a fresh implant in that's just a normal breast implant, you should have a, a breast-looking reconstruction. And there are pros and cons to that, and some people may not be suitable for that. For example, patients who've had radiotherapy generally aren't suitable for an implant-based reconstruction. But that, again, could be a relative contraindication depending on the effects of the radiotherapy and how severe they've been. So implant-based reconstruction, number one. Secondly, is a flap of tissue that stays attached to your body but is moved from somewhere else. For example, from your back here. So the latissimus dorsi muscle, which is the biggest muscle in your body, has a skin paddle in the middle of it, which can be about that big. And that is dissected out all the way up to its blood vessel that supplies the muscle and the skin overlying it, and then tunneled through to recreate the breast mound and the uh, skin that's been lost with the reconstruction. Sometimes that reconstruction is supplemented with fat transfer, so taking fat from elsewhere using liposuction and then building that breast up. Some people do that reconstruction with an implant as well. For me, that's a bit of a waste of time because you're getting a, a long reconstruction that's very complex and then you're just whacking an implant in because you just want to make things bigger. And there are other ways to do it with autologous tissue. So autologous just means your own tissue. Okay. That's the second way. That's called a pedicle flap. The third and probably the gold standard in reconstruction is by using tissue from elsewhere that you detach from the body and then you reattach to your body. And that's a vascularized uh, flap. And the most common place to take that from is your tummy. So exactly the same tissue that you would use from abdominoplasty. You use that skin, the fat underneath that, and that's just attached to one blood vessel that goes to the flap, which is about a millimeter and a half in diameter, and one vessel going away from the flap, which is the vein. You then detach that. You take out one of the ribs here, maybe the third rib, uh, and behind that there are one artery and one vessel uh, vein, and they're about a millimeter and a half or so in diameter. You have to dissect them out with a microscope, and then you attach the two with a microscope the uh, breast on and there you go and i can't even Obviously. change a light bulb <laughs> and this is what they do. Um, i mean so so <laughs> there the, the, the are pros and cons to each one of those mm -hmm. uh not least in terms of the patient's journey throughout that mm -hmm. and if you look at that reconstruction for the tummy to the breast usually what we call a dieppe flap uh, or deep inferior epigastric artery flap that is a big operation it takes maybe eight ten hours Wow. up to a week or so in hospital and of course if one of those vessels in one of the flaps stops flowing you lose the entire reconstruction so the risk to the patient needs to be explained and the risk of that occurring in each side is maybe five percent and you know again i think for that type of operation psychologically you have to be in that position where that is an acceptable failure rate for you as you go down that ladder if you like in terms of the reconstruction using the flap from the back to recreate the breast without detaching it from you, 
the failure rate of that operation, for example, is less than half a percent. Probably less than that. I've never seen it fail. Okay. The implant-based one has a little bit of a worse reputation, um, but there's a lot of technique involved in, particularly in implant-based reconstruction, that can contribute to that failure rate. So the key for the person that's written that question is to speak to a plastic surgeon, not just a breast surgeon who may just have one of those options mm -hmm. available. And this is why you come here and you can see him, <laughs> because but, but, that alone has just I'm, explained I'm, why you want somebody who knows exactly what they're doing, whether you're a simple breast implant or yeah. a larger breast reconstruction, or you're a breast reduction, what these guys do day to day in the NHS, I cannot shout about it loudly enough. I mean, yeah. some of these operations that they are doing are life-changing to patients. They're 13-hour ops. Yeah. They take invitation to go up to Rakemore and travel around the country to make sure that these women are facilitated and they get the best possible care. And I think that is it's a fantastic thing to be able to do in your profession. And I think it's just credit to them for staying in the NHS and not running off and being purely private surgeons. But, but I think the key, the key with that lady is, you know, see your GP, get referred to the right person, have a chat. And, um, you know, the, the, there are lots of decisions to make. Yeah. It is it's not usually an easy decision. You well, know, I feel like I'm a wee bit speechless, to be honest, because when you were in the middle of talking to your dad, I was like getting the fear about visualising having to do something like that on someone. I mean, that is like so wow beyond I mean credit yeah. to you you don't like a live but you can do stuff like that <laughs> Laura I'm I wish so I could fearful. I know Laura <laughs> I wish you guys could see what I see when they're in surgery I mean the yeah. attention to detail the focus how much work goes into that we don't overload our lists because I'm very well aware that this is tiring on the guys like they can we don't have a conveyor belt of patients just coming through and churn 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 one after the other it takes a lot all of our guys at Medicare work for the NHS. They've got full-time contracts with the NHS to do sessions where they're dealing with lots of different things. Um, and I'm very well aware of that. And right now, we've got a, bit of a problem where people are chomping at the bit for surgery and we're having to facilitate all the different things. I hope this gives an indication as to what he's doing when he's not here. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. What a chat, guys. I, I feel as if that was so super interesting to hear you know, all the different elements of, of breast surgery. It's been really great chatting to both of you. Thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you for giving us the opportunity to do this. We don't often get this amount of time to talk about all the different things that go along with it. And I never ever want this to be like a salesy thing, like, oh, come to Medicare and get your boobs done. It's not about that at all. It's, yeah. Even if you're not coming to us, it's about what questions to ask, what to look for, what red flags, what you might be thinking about, what's suitable for you definitely look at all your options and research and don't just research on google because it's just not good enough yeah yeah absolutely google will show you what what it wants to show you won't it so oh no honestly that was so so interesting and i really do hope that the ladies that have asked the questions you guys have answered them brilliantly and if there's any other questions there might have even been some but that was like such a an absolute ton there that people can contact you direct and ask anything else Okay, well, thank you. And well, having us, and we look forward to the next one. I can't remember what the next one's about, but I'm looking forward to it. It'll be, well, if it, this is anything to go by, it'll be an absolute stoter. Dan's like, I won't be on that, okay? <laughs> He's like, it's not me next time. <laughs> oh, amazing. Right, great, guys. Thank you so much. Well, we have a lovely night. See you later. Have a lovely night. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.